You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Well, good morning. Morning. If you have your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 uh, is where we're going to be hanging out this morning. And we're going to continue in our series, uh, Grounded, a uh, look at 1 Thessalonians. And we're looking at the subject matter of uh, loving and living today. And, uh, and looking at what it means for us as believers. What does it mean for this local community of believers, this church, to love one another, and how does that then translate into our everyday life when we leave this place? And, uh, and what we're going to see in our text this morning is that Paul uh, does something rather radical, and uh, that he's actually going to pivot, he's going to shift directions. He spent much of chapter 4 talking about uh, what we shouldn't be, what we ought not to do. And in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, you know, stay away from that. I get it's, it's rampant in your culture. I get that it's the, the thing that most people are living for, but, but you are to abstain from that. You're to look away, because verse 7 says, uh, we are to uh, not be impure, but rather we're called to holiness. We're called to look different. We're called to be set apart. And, and so in, in verse uh, 9 of chapter 4, Paul turns from what we're not to be and begins to look at what we should be. Uh, what are we to focus on? And it's, it's where lo- people characterized by love and how that affects our living. And, uh, and so I was thinking uh, this week, my wife and I, we've had uh, many conversations over the last few months. Our little guy, three, uh, who's three, uh, is going to school this September. And it's a tension. Some of you are parents, some of you are grandparents, some of you get this tension where uh, your little one's growing up, uh, and it's hard to watch. And I look at my little guy, and I think, I want you to stay small, but I need you to grow up at the same time. You know, I, I want you to pour your own bowl of cereal. Uh, I want you to go to the bathroom by yourself. Uh, I really need you to go to the bathroom by yourself. You know, I'm done, I'm done doing this. You know, I need you to grow up. I need you to get an education. I need you to, to learn and be the best you can be and be that all that God has for you. But I want you to be small. I don't want you to lose that innocence. I don't want you to lose, uh, you know, that joy and, and that kind of uh, so naive and just so passionate for life. Uh, I love, there's nothing that uh, makes me more excited than coming home from work and opening the door, and just the sound of the door sends him screaming. He's just, does, he can come from anywhere in the house, and he will run screaming, and he will not stop until he has bear-hugged me. And, uh, and he's excited. His poor little sister is collateral damage every single time. Uh, Nora, who's one, just gets trampled, you know, just evaporates as he comes down the hallway. And, uh, and, and I want him to stay like that. And so we were thinking this week, and we're trying to decide, you know, where do we put them in? And, and I was thinking about a, a, a scenario earlier this September. I had woken up, and it had been a, a particularly long week. You know, I, I had been working lots, and my wife, Jen, was very tired. And, uh, and so I said to her, I said, Jen, you know, y- you rest. Let me take the kids. You know, I got it. Uh, you just do what you need to do this morning. And, and she looked at me, and she said, are you sure? <laughs> and, I, and I looked at her and said, yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I'm a trained professional. You know, I, I, I'm their dad. Uh, I promise they will come back. They will be in good working order. They will have a pulse. They will be alive. We'll be back at lunch. And, uh, and so I said, you know, I'm going to go down. I'm going to feed them. And then I'm going to get them ready. And we're going to go do something. And she's like, okay. And uh, so down I go. And we eat. And, and parents, you get this. Um, getting them ready to go anywhere is the worst thing in the world. It takes hours. And I, I look at my son. I'm like, Cal, I was like, put your shoes on, bud. We're going to go. Uh, well, I don't have socks. Okay, well, go put your socks. Oh, I don't know where they are. 
I was like, just, just find the man. Just get your shoes on. We got to go. And, you know, and it takes hours to come to church on Sunday morning. You must be up at 5 a.m. You know, it, it takes forever. And so I'm working with him, and I'm getting him ready. We finally get out the door. We get to the park, and, uh, and we're just around the corner from our house, and we're running, and we're playing. Nora is just starting to walk, and so she's falling all over the place, and that's funny, and, you know, and, and we're just having a good time. Uh, and then I get the call. And, and dads, you know this, when you look at your phone and, and it's, uh, your wife is calling, checking in. And, and so I pick up the phone and I'm like, hi, Jen. And she's like, is everyone alive? <laughs> I'm like, yes, we're, we're alive. I was like, I can see our house. You know, we're just at the park. She's like, okay, good. Uh, you know, uh, did you bring snacks? I was like, yes, I, I brought snacks. Okay, are they wearing hats? I was like, hats? I was like, well, what is this, prison? Like, you know, relax, you know? And, you know, I was like, no, they're not wearing hats. Well, are they wearing sunscreen? No, they're not wearing sunscreen. I'll be right over. I'm like, no. I was like, Jen, relax, go to bed. And, uh, and so uh, as I'm about to hang up the phone, and I'm just laughing with her, we're kind of teasing each other and doing this thing, and this rogue toddler comes out from under the slide. And, and I can see him out of the corner of my eye, and I know right away I don't like the cut of his jib. Uh, I, he's no good. He's trouble. And he comes out from under the slide, and my little girl's walking towards me, and he kind of comes in the middle, and he just kisses her right on the cheek. Yes, some of you, I just went into full Liam Neeson mode, okay? <laughs> I'm just like, I've got a very specific set of skills, <laughs> you know? And I hang out, I'm like, Jen, I'm like, I gotta go. And I just put the phone in my pocket, and I start walking towards this boy, and my son senses what's about to happen, intervenes in the situation, which is scary because he's three. And, and he comes in, and he takes a page right of my own parenting playbook. Those of you with little kids, you know, for my, for my son, eye contact is paramount. If I'm trying to teach him or explain something to him, if he's not looking at me, he's not listening. And, uh, and so he gets down, gets right down on eye level with this little boy. He's like, I need you to look at me in the eyes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh no, <laughs> I know where this is going. I need you to look at me, and the best part is he's not pointing at his eyes, he's hitting his nose. He's like, I need you to look at me in the eyes. And, uh, and so, and he says, the Bible says uh, that we are to love one another uh, like Jesus loves us. And I'm thinking, wow. Thank you, Lord, for cubbies. You know, it's, it's working. You know, he's, he's reciting scripture. And he says this, and the little boy's just kind of staring at him, like, who are you, and where did you come from? And, and he's it's still eye contact. He's looking at him. He's like, now, here's your choice. You can come play with me, or you can go home. <laughs> but no one touches my sister. Not even Jesus kisses my sister. <laughs> and, and I'm standing there just clapping. I'm just like, well done, son, you know, <laughs> way to diffuse the situation. And his dad uh, comes out from behind the playground, and he too is just like, oh my word, he's like, how is your son speaking like this? And, and I turned and I said, well, you see the silhouette on the hill coming with the Costco tub of sunscreen? <laughs> you know, that is the woman who has done a brilliant job with our kids and continues to do so. Uh, and it's this very principle as I'm unpacking this with his dad, and we're talking about what it's like raising kids in and, and this age stage where they're so young, but they're, they're so passionate, and they come off the rails so easily, and so how do we parent? How do we do all this stuff? And, uh, and I'm talking to them, and, and we're just coming back to the same thing. Doesn't matter what you try. Doesn't matter what you do. If Christ is not the center of it, uh, our kids will never be what, what we hope they will become. If it's not for Jesus intervening in someone's life, your ability to love and then live will never, will never be accomplished. My job as a parent is not to, uh, first and foremost, create 
uh, you know, environments and situations where they can perform and behave the way I want them to. Uh, my first and foremost priority is introducing them to Jesus. It's keeping Jesus in front of them, and as they interact and as they learn and hopefully meet him one day, that they will then experience this transformation and be able to love and live appropriately. And so if you have your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 9, this is exactly what Paul's going to talk about today, this morning, is how do we as Christians, whether in good or in bad times, whether you're 3 or whether you're 30, how do you love and live in an in, in a ever-increasing secular world? So I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read, read this together. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Lord, we thank you for today. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your love and for your grace. Uh, Lord, this morning as we open your word, would you set our hearts on becoming more like you? Would we look more like you? Uh, regardless of the kind of weeks that we have had, Lord, uh, would we leave this space, would we leave this time together, having been in your word, uh, loving and living more like your son, Jesus? Lord, I thank you for our children. Uh, Lord, I thank you for what we were able to witness just a few moments ago with Jerusalem. Uh, God, would you bless our families and would you help us to raise our kids in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you? Because uh, it's amazing what we can learn from them and it's amazing what we can see in them. And so, Lord, we pray for them. We pray for us. Uh, would we look more and more like your son? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Four things for us here this morning that Paul is going to draw to in these four these verses, the first two deal specifically with the concept of love. The last two uh, deal with how love then translates into our life, into how we live. First point is this. It comes right out of verse 9. Love is certain. Love is certain. Paul says, now concerning, in other words, he's transitioning. We've talked about this. He's moving away from what we're not to be to what we are. But he says, now concerning, and he's talking about the report that Timothy has given in chapter 3. Timothy is giving just a, a glowing report on the health uh, and the, just the vibrancy of this church. And, and Paul is now going to reference that. He's now going to reference that report, and he's going to talk about the love that is apparent and real in this Thessalonian church. And he says, now concerning brotherly love. We can't gloss over that, that, that phrase, brotherly love, for a few reasons. First and foremost, you know, the English kind of misses the intent. Uh, we have to look at the original language to get a better sense as to what Paul was actually talking about. And what we see is that in Greek, there are four words for love. First one uh, is called eros, or erotic love. We can find it in the Song of Solomon. It's, it's about uh, you know, that intimacy that, that a man and a woman can experience in a committed, loving, lawful marriage. Um, you know, we'll park it for there. We'll let Pastor Paul explain that one later down the road, you know, but that's, that's eros, you know. The second one is called agape, and it's this self-sacrificing, all-encompassing love. It's what's often referred to uh, about Jesus or about God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son uh, so that we wouldn't perish but have eternal life if, if we believe in him. 
It's this idea that agape love is, I will go to the cross because I love you so much. I will sacrifice whatever it takes to make sure that you know that you are loved, to know that I am with you, that I am walking with you. Uh, I love you that much. It's all-encompassing. It's self-sacrificing. That's agape love. Then there's what we call storge. Um, it, it's kind of this familial love. It's the, just the basic love you have for someone because they're family. Uh, it's, you know, by nature of you being a brother and having a sister or a mom and dad, it's just that intrinsic, that nature of being connected through your DNA, connected through that bloodline. Uh, you naturally just have some basic affinities for that person. But then we're left with what Paul uses, which is uh, brotherly love, which is the word phileo. Uh, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And what uh, brotherly love is, is it builds on storge. It builds on this kind of basic DNA that we have within our families just by being related. And it's actually more often used than not in the context of the church. It's this idea that uh, I'm not going to be surfacy. I'm not going to be shallow. I'm not going to be distant, but I'm going to be heavily invested and walk with this group of people. It's this idea that when we are out in our foyer after service, we don't just simply say, hi, how are you, then get in your car and and drive away. You know, it's about, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be with you. It's that best friend you have that you can tell anyone or tell anything you can call at any time of day and walk with them. It's this idea that the body of Christ is deeply connected. This is what Paul says is, is what the church is. It's we should be characterized by brotherly love. C.S. Lewis writes a book called The Four Loves, expands this whole thing much, much clearer and much, much better. And, and he hits on this big time, is saying, you know, the church, the benchmark, or one of the benchmarks of a healthy church can be observed by how they interact and how they love one another. Doesn't mean we're perfect. But it means we go about our business, we go about doing things, we, we hold ourselves to a high standard, we walk with one another through thick and through thin. We know each other deeply. Now the problem with this is as we look at most of our churches, especially in North America, we have a large contingent of people that are kind of the core of our churches, and then an awful lot more who are on the fringes. An awful lot of people who kind of come, kind of sit, observe, take in, but they aren't really connected to the actual uh, body. They aren't experiencing this brotherly love. And what Paul is assuming here is that everybody is in. Everybody's in. There's no one on the fringes. There's no one at a loss. Everyone is working hard, is serving together, is working for Christ, um, honoring Christ by how they care for one another. We see this in passages like Galatians chapter 6. Verse 10, it says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everybody, especially those in the body of faith. It's this idea that we um, are intentionally, we're being good, we're serving one another, we're working for Christ, uh, and we are doing that in our entire lives, but we pay special attention to our church context. We are doing good, we are serving the body, brotherly love. You look at Acts chapter 2, uh, here's over the, overnight, over the, the result of one sermon, Peter preaches and 3,000 people come to faith, and we're told in Acts chapter 2 uh, that they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, they have fellowship, they're breaking bread, they're praying together, and not one of them had need. Everyone shared what they had, so no one had need. It wasn't a few people shared so that the core was okay. 
it wasn't a few people kind of got a hold of the message and kind of built on it. It was everybody in the church was accounted for and was loved equally. Paul says, as he expands on this, he says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. In other words, we don't have to spend any more time talking about this, and he gives two reasons why. The first one is because you've been taught by God to love one another. Taught by God to love one another. What Paul is suggesting here is, is that when you encounter Jesus in a meaningful and real, powerful way, when you become uh, from death and you move into light, when you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, what he's suggesting here is, is that you inherently acquire the ability to love. Christians don't need to find scripture to justify themselves being loving. Christians don't have to read books to, to realize all of a sudden, gee, I need to be a loving person. By virtue of meeting Jesus, you are given a supernatural ability to love and care for others that you couldn't have otherwise done. Paul says, we don't need to dwell on this any longer because you get it. It's obvious. You are people characterized by love first and foremost because you've been taught by God. We see this elsewhere in scripture in Romans chapter five, in verse five it says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we have to ask ourselves, is love certain in your life? Is love certain in your life? Is it obvious? By virtue of knowing Jesus, you should be characterized as someone who is loving who is tangibly and, and obviously loving others. If I were to be a fly on your wall at your home, or if I were to sit beside you in church here this morning, would I be able to just visually notice how loving and caring you are for those around you? Are you serving? Are you working? Are you giving back? Or are you here just to, just to take it all in? Are you invested in the community here? Are you invested in, in ensuring that brotherly love continues, that no one has need? Is that you here this morning? Love is certain. It's guaranteed. Just by knowing Christ, you are a person of love. Paul now gives us a second reason why he doesn't need to kind of belabor this point. Uh, he says, you know, we don't need to write to you because you've been taught by God how to love. Verse 10 tells us, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Two things. Number one, the love of this church was so profound, it was so obvious, it was so active that the entire province knew of them. It's this concept that not only love is certain, it is also continuing. It doesn't just stop when we leave this building. It doesn't just stop when you leave your community here, but it begins to infiltrate surrounding regions. It's growing. It's growing geographically, but then it's also growing in yourself. It's growing in your own heart. Your ability, what Paul's point here is, is your ability to love should be growing. You should be able to look back on your Christian life and be able to mark how and in what ways and in what areas have you become a more loving person. The entire province of Macedonia was aware of this church and they were characterized by people who loved. We're, we're talking about Philippi, we're talking about Berea, we're talking about days distance travel. 
And somehow this church has found a way to love those other communities. Paul says, we don't have to talk about this. You guys get it. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. It's this idea that love is continuing, that love grows. Christ is the benchmark, and I think we all understand that. Our call as Christians is to be more and more Christ-like. We see in John chapter 15, uh, in, in verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Christ is the benchmark. Christ is the goal. Scripture tells us in Matthew 5, you, know, you will be known by your fruit. People can identify who you are, what you believe, what you're about, what your priori priorities are based on the fruit you produce. We're called to be growing in our ability to love. But love is continuing. Love is growing. And so we have to ask ourselves here this morning, how can I tangibly look back on my past as a Christian? Am I growing in my ability to love? My fear is, especially here in North America, as we become so autonomous and we become so individually minded that we've actually removed ourselves from community and it becomes increasingly more difficult to actually identify how have I actually grown in my faith? How have I actually grown in my ability to love? Now here's the temptation, I gotta be real honest with you. I, I do small groups here, but I also do biblical soul care, and so it's not uncommon for me to be sitting across from someone who said, you know, Pastor Mark, I, I heard your message. Uh, I heard what you said. I need to be more loving. And so for these past two weeks, I have been trying to become more loving. I've been trying to do this, but it's been two weeks and I've fallen off the bandwagon. And I've fallen hard. You know, how am I supposed to keep going? It's impossible. I can never be Christ-like. And to a certain degree, you're right. We know we will never be exactly like Christ, even though we're called to be as much as our, is in our power to be like him. But here's the problem when we try to force our sanctification or when we try to be more loving out of our own will rather than pressing into God is, is that we begin to just attack symptoms we identify problems in our life and we try to fix them. We put band-aids on them and we neglect the whole bottom of the iceberg that's not visible, which is you and I are broken people. We can't fix ourselves. We can only do that through the power of Jesus. If you want to see sanctification happen in your life, if you want to grow in your love, you first and foremost go to the source of that love. You go to Jesus. You will never see lasting change in your life if you do it on your own. But if you press into Jesus, if you give yourself to him and let his spirit work in you, that is when you see life change. Paul outlines this exact same principle in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, even though he's writing to the Corinthians, he's talking about this very church in, in Thessal Thessalonica. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Understand, it's not you know, what they did. It's not how hard they tried. It's about the grace that was extended to them. He goes on to say, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They're an incredibly generous church. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but hear this. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You want to see change in your life. You give yourself to Jesus. 
You don't manufacture it yourself. You go to Jesus. You press into Jesus. You press into the source of that love to become more loving. Don't set yourself up to failure by trying to do it on your own. My last year of, of Bible college, I was 20, 21 years old, and, uh, and I had to do an internship. And so I went to my home church, and I said, look, here's the deal. I got a year left of school. Um, I need to do an internship. Can I shadow the, your youth pastor? Um, can I watch him, walk with him, learn from him, have an internship? Uh, and, and they said, that would be wonderful. We'd love to have you. And then two days before my internship started, uh, the youth pastor resigned. <laughs> and uh, so I became the youth pastor, and, and I didn't even know it. Uh, I just showed up, and they said, great news. Uh, you're in. <laughs> you know? And it's like coming out of the bullpen in the ninth inning. You're up. And, uh, and so me and my best friend, we kind of just thought, okay, well, we've got a year. Let's not do anything rash. Let's just try and, you know, help these kids, walk them through this transition. Let's not make any radical changes. But if anything, let's make sure that they know they're loved. And so one of the ways we thought we could do that was uh, by watching and, and leading the grade 12 boys small group. Um, teenagers terrify me. And, uh, you know, and this is why, um, because there's nothing more frightening than getting up in front of a group of people and they just stare at you like you're an idiot. And, uh, and this is what I found grade 12 boys can do if you don't capture their attention quickly is uh, they kind of think, who are you and why are you here? And so for those first three months, that was our experience. And it was, it was gut-wrenching. I, I, I did not get excited at all about walking into that small group uh, because it was just so surfacy. There was no conversation. There was no willingness to be open and honest with each other. It didn't matter how hard you, you worked on the study, what questions you wrote. There was just not a spirit of authenticity there. Uh, the, prayer, uh, the prayer life of these boys surrounded mostly around, um, I didn't study for my test, but I still need to do well so my parents don't kill me. Um, so we're going to pray about that. You know, that was, that was the extent of our small group. And, uh, and so my best friend and I, we were praying, we were praying, we were trying to figure out what to do, and then we were just smacked with this tragedy in the middle of November. Grade 10 boy in our youth group uh, diagnosed with cancer. Um, unsure how long he's going to live. Um, it's, his future is unclear. And, and so in the, over a course of a weekend, um, this young boy gets taken downtown Toronto where he's admitted for likely months while he goes through different surgeries and treatments for this cancer. Our youth group met the next Tuesday and uh, the whole dynamic was shot. Everyone was just blown away by this news. This was a young boy, tons of life, tons of potential, great, great kid, um, and now he's in the hospital. And, uh, and so I march uh, into our small group room and, uh, and I kind of sit down and I said, look guys, here's the deal. I don't have any more gas in the tank. I've been beating my head against a wall for three months. It's not getting anywhere. So especially in light of what's happened, how about we just pray? You know, forget the study, forget what we had planned, let's just pray. And for the next half hour, we did. And, and it was improved. You know, there was more participation in, in the what would normally be, but it was still kind of timid. And, and, and so we finished praying and I was prepared to just say, you know what? do your thing, you know, hang out for the last 20 minutes and, you know, and then, you know, you can go home. But, but suddenly a student spoke up 
This is literally the first time this has happened all fall. <laughs> you know, grade 12 boy speaks up and he says, well, what would it look like if we were to try and help? What, what would that mean? Um, you know, what would it mean if, if we took meals? Um, another boy said, well, I, I know for a fact that this family, the mom, had to take a leave from work. She, she has no more income and they've got mortgage payments and stuff. You know, how are they going to afford to live? Another student said, well, they're commuting from Ajax to Toronto. That's an awful lot of gas. Another student said, well, then they got to park. How are they going to afford to park? Um, other students started piping in, and what we saw over the course of the next three months was, was God doing incredible work in these 14 boys in which they were visiting this student weekly. They were writing notes. They were calling him during our small group time to pray for him and to hear how things were going. Uh, this family did not have to buy or make a meal for three months because of these 14 boys. Uh, they raised enough money to cover three months of mortgage payments for this family. Um, it's unclear. They could have raised the money or they could have stolen it from their parents. Um, you know, but over $1,200 in gas cards went to this family. Uh, another uh, a mom of one of the students used her nursing connections to arrange for two parking passes at the hospital for this family so that as they came and went, they never had to pay for parking. This continued over three months to the point where, unfortunately, he actually passed away. But it was my 14 boys who were the first ones through the door at Saturday at 2 p.m. Uh, to mourn with the family to walk with the family through the whole funeral proceedings, through the visitation. It was my boys in the front row that were supporting this family. They were the first ones to come and the last ones to leave. Their entire schools got invited to the funeral. We're talking about thousands of kids came to this little guy's funeral and heard the gospel. And it came on the backs of 14 grade 12 boys that finally got this principle, that love grows. We're not meant to be fixated on ourselves. We're not meant to be so consumed with ourselves and so inward focused, but we're called to be people who love and people who tangibly grow in that love. Love should continue. It doesn't stop, it continues. Are you a loving person today? Is your love growing as your relationship with Christ is growing? Paul continues, and, and he has two points now, and he takes these things, and he takes this notion of love, and then he shifts it to how it plays out in, in practical life, how it happens outside of this building. Uh, and he's got two things for us. Not only do we uh, love as certain, not only is love continuing, but now we live peacefully. We see this in verse 11. Um, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Your love is continuing, verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Three things Paul instructs them. He says, you know what love looks like out in the world? You know what it means to live like Christ did? First thing is this, is live peacefully, be quiet. Now what he's saying is not, you know, you extroverts in the room, when you come into the room and, and start laughing and jumping and get everyone excited and you make introverts cringe a little bit, you know, uh, he's not saying be quiet. What he's saying is in your spirit, in your soul, be quiet. Here's the thing, and this has been my experience, and I guarantee it's been yours. It's impossible to love people if you don't have peace in your soul. 
It's impossible to care for people if your soul is disrupted. You can try, you can do everything you want, but at the end of the day, if you don't have peace in your heart, that love is only gonna go so far. Paul says, live peacefully, be quiet in your spirit. Isaiah 26, verse three says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It's this idea as you trust Jesus more and more, you have peace in your spirit, you have peace in your heart. And when you have peace in your heart, what you'll find is you mind your own business. That's the next thing Paul tells us. He says, be quiet, be peaceful. Mind your own affairs, mind your own business. Don't meddle in other people's stuff. Don't be fixated on other people's successes and failures. Don't be so concerned about how you measure up to your peers or your colleagues, how you, how you feel you fit in with your friends. It doesn't matter. As I tell my little three-year-old guy, at the end of the day, you are only responsible for your actions. It doesn't matter what anyone does around you. It doesn't matter what happens around you. At the end of the day, you are accountable for yourself. We mind our own business. And what happens is, is if we have a restless heart, if we have a heart that doesn't have peace, then we immediately tend to go to others. We fixate on other people to try and justify how we should feel or how we should uh, be acknowledged. That's not love. We don't find our justification in others. We find it in Jesus. And so be at peace in your spirit. Mind your own business. And the third thing he says is work hard. Work with your hands. A few reasons Paul might have said this, if you look at, through the rest of the book in your own Bibles there in chapter 4 and, ver- and chapter 5, it's all about the return of Jesus. We're going to start talking about this next week. It's going to be so exciting. Uh, but, but some commentators have argued that they were so pumped up about the return of Jesus that they thought, why are we working? And it's, it's an argument, you know, if Jesus is coming, why are we going to work? Yeah, but Paul says, work with your hands. Work hard. Another argument could be made that in Greek culture, manual labor is kind of looked down upon. If you're educated, if you're, if you're of a certain class, you know, you don't do manual labor. You, you hand that off to others. Uh, those who aren't as educated, we don't do that. And Paul says, no, no, no. If people are watching, as outsiders look at you, we, we love. And how do we do that? It's by living peacefully. It's by minding your own business and then showing that you're no specialer than anyone else. You're no more unique than anyone else. Work hard. Be the best you can be. Tim Keller in his book, it's actually out in the foyer. It's one of the best books I've read in the last 18 months. It's called Every Good Endeavor. Uh, He says at the beginning of his book, he says, your daily work is ultimately an act of worship to the God who called you and equipped you to do it, no matter what kind of work it is. It's this idea of whether you are a homemaker, a real estate agent, a banker, a lawyer, a doctor, a farmer, whatever it is you do, whatever is your work, you do it to the glory of God. It's not a means to a paycheck. It's not something you have to suffer through to actually pay for the things you really want to do. Your work is a God-given exercise meant to glorify him. Genesis 1 through 2, we see God at work. We see him creating the universe. At the end of chapter 1 and verse 28, what does he tell Adam and Eve? Multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over it. Invest in it. Steward it. They weren't just hanging out in the garden all day. They were, they were working. 
In chapter 2, this this concept is fleshed out further. In verse 15, it says, God put man in the garden to work and take care of it. It's part of humankind's existence. It's part of our mandate to work hard. The problem is, as we see in chapter 3 in Genesis, that sin enters the world and that image is fractured. Work changes. We're told now childbearing is painful. That man will have to work for their living. They're going to have to work hard. They're going to sweat. They're going to work the earth. Work is, was, has changed. It's fundamentally changed. It moved away from glorifying God to now being a means of survival. So one commentator put it this way. Work, even when it bears fruit, is always painful and sometimes kills us. And some of you get that. You know what it's like to work yourself into the ground. You know what it's like to be chasing that one thing and to work hard and to go, 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 and the next thing you know you're in the hospital because you can't handle it anymore. That's not why we work. We work to glorify God, not man. Our work is an expression of glory to God. And thank goodness for that. Thank goodness Jesus dies on the cross, is raised again, and that satisfies God's wrath. It satisfies the penalty that you and I should be paying for our sin. Because what we see is that work is restored. We have hope. We have purpose. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A few verses later, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord, not man. We have hope again. We have purpose. We love, and as we love, it translates into our life so we live peacefully with one another. We're we're at peace in our spirit. We mind our own business, and we work hard. We work to glorify God. Lastly, point number four, why do we do this? What's the point in all of this? Point number four is simply this, live properly. Why do we live at peace? Why, uh, why do we mind our own business? Why do we work hard? Verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What Paul is envisioning here is not that we become so uh, work-oriented and so self-sufficient that we actually remove from the church or remove from society but rather we're just being responsible stewards of what God's given us. So we work hard and we live in such a way that is loving to others. Why? So that outsiders will take notice. I had a real interesting conversation with a young adult not that long ago and we were debating, you know, how do you be a Christian in a secular world? You know, we want people to notice us so we can tell them about Jesus, so we can redirect, uh, you know, their observations to Jesus. But a lot of people are hostile to that. You know, the more overtly Christian you are, the more annoyed people seem to get. And where our conversation landed was obviously, we can't control what others do. What we do know is that if people were happy with their own life situation, they wouldn't be so keen to be looking at yours. And so we can't be concerned about how people respond. We can't be concerned about how people interpret our love and how uh, Christ has changed us. Our job is to convey the message. Our job is to love and then live accordingly, to live properly, to be different, to be holy. First Peter chapter 1 says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We're called to look different. We're called to be set apart. We're called to live in such a way that will draw attention to ourselves, that will force people to make observations and see there's something different about him. That might come in nice packages or it might come in mean ones. That's not our responsibility. We are to live in a loving manner out of respect for those who are watching us so we can introduce them to Jesus. And so, so what? What do we do with this? What's the point? Well, the point is simply this. There's an obvious mandate that Paul gives the church that we are to love in such a way. We're to love uh, in a way that is obvious and a way that is growing, that's continuing. And so we have to take a hard look at ourselves and think, how am I loving the church? How am I loving my brother and sister? How am I investing in this body? How is that love growing? And then how is that translating into how I live? How is that affecting my soul, my heart, my work? As others take notice. Are you a person who's loving, who's growing in your love, and then living properly, living set apart, living in a a manner worthy of Jesus Christ? I stood in this park, and, uh, and while my, my wife was applying sunscreen to our, uh, to our little ones, uh, this dad and I continued to chat, and, and he was getting real honest with me. And he just said, uh, you know, we've talked to a lot of people. Uh, we've talked to friends. We've talked to my own parents. We've read books. We've done a lot of stuff, but it doesn't seem to be working. It works for a season, but there's always a regression. And, uh, and, and that's, where, that's where I had him. That's where I looked at him and I said, look, here's the deal, friend. You can do whatever you want. You can try as hard as you want, but short of Jesus, your child's not changing. Short of Jesus in your own life, you're not gonna change either. And so let's cut to the chase here. Let's talk about Jesus for a minute. Let's talk about that impact. Let's talk about how, you know, it's every Christian's desire to see their kids come to know Jesus in a personal and private way. That we fundamentally cannot change them. We can shape, we can mold, we can try to modify behavior, but short of them coming to know Jesus and coming to know what that love looks like, at best, we're just modifying behavior. They need to know Jesus, so let's talk about that. A perfect example of how a three-year-old got an outsider to start thinking about Jesus. It's brilliant. You know, and this isn't to put my son on a pedestal. You know, there's days where I want to kill him. You know, you guys get that? I'm not saying he's the, the bar we're striving for, but it's an example. An example of how I sat with him afterwards and I said, Callum, way to go, buddy. Way to keep your cool. A way to speak love into a situation. And it was harmless, this little boy. It was a kiss on the cheek. Nora doesn't even remember. You know, it's all good. But it's brilliant how uh, just the care that a little one showed got an adult to take notice and start asking real questions about what does it mean to live and parent in today's world. That is why, that is why this matters. It's for the sake of those who have yet to know Jesus. 
who desperately need to know about him and might only know him through the actions that you and I have as a result of, of loving Jesus, seeing that love manifest itself and grow in you, and then see how that changes the way you live and how you live properly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We love you. Lord, I am the first to admit that, that I do not have it all together. Uh, that loving um, is a difficult thing some days. It is not intuitive. It does not come naturally. But, but thankfully, by your son and by your grace, uh, I'm changing. And, and Lord, I pray that that would be true for all of us. Uh, Lord, we understand that we will never be perfect, that it's a tall order to be like your son. But as long as there is love and as long as there is grace, Lord, would you continue to mold and shape us? Uh, would we continue to be people who love and live in a way that others would look and say, there's something different. I like the look of that fruit. Lord, would people come to know you? Would people be saved through your working in us? Would you continue to change us and mold us to look more like your son? not for our own glory, not for our own betterment, but so that others might come to know you and that we would give you all the glory. We love you, Lord. Help us to be a church that's characterized by love, that other churches, that communities, that workplaces, that families would stop and say, there's something happening at Harvest York Region. There's something going on there. I gotta know what it is. Lord, would that be our story? Help us to love you more. By your grace, would you help us to do that more and more? And we pray these things in your name. Amen.